In 1 Samuel 26, we have the renewal of Saul's persecution of David and David's innocence proven yet again of the accusations laid against him. Hear now the inspired word of God profitable for us. 1 Samuel 26. And the Ziphites came unto Saul to Gibeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself in the hill of Hakilah, which is before Jeshimon? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to, to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul pitched in the hill of Hakilah, which is before Jeshimon by the way. But David abode in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul was come in very deed. And David arose and came to the place where Saul had pitched, and David beheld the place where Saul lay. And Abner, the son of Ner, the captain of his host, and Saul lay in the trench, and the people pitched round about him. Then answered David and said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, brother to Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul to the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with thee. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, David lay sleeping within the or Saul lay sleeping within the trench, and his spear stuck in the ground at his bolster, but Abner and the people lay round about him. Then said Abishai to David, God hath delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. Now therefore, let me smite him, I pray thee, with the spear even to the earth at once, and I will not smite him the second time. And David said to Abishai, Destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, Furthermore, As the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed, but I pray thee, take thou now the spear that is at his bolster in the cruise of water, and let us go. So David took the spear and the cruise of water from Saul's bolster, and they got them away, and no man saw it, nor knew it, neither awaked. For they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord was fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side, and stood on the top of an hill afar off, a great space being between them. And David cried to the people, and to Abner the son of Ner, saying, Answerest thou not, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who art thou that criest to the king? And David said to Abner, Art not thou a valiant man? And who is like to thee in Israel? Wherefore then hast thou not kept thy lord the king? For there came one of the people in to destroy the king, thy lord. This thing is not good that thou hast done. As the Lord liveth, ye are worthy to die, because ye have not kept your master the Lord's anointed. And now, 
See where the king's spear is and the cruise of water that was at his bolster. And Saul knew David's voice and said, Is this thy voice, my son, David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Wherefore doth my lord thus pursue after his servant? For what have I done, or what evil is in mine hand? Now therefore I pray thee, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord have stirred thee up against me, let him accept an offering. But if they be the children of men, cursed be they before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as when one doth hunt a partridge in the mountains. Then said Saul, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Behold the king's spear, and let one of the young men come over and fetch it. The Lord render to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered thee into my hand today, but I would not stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes, so let my life be much set by in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be thou, my son David. Thou shalt both do great things and also shalt still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 26. May the Lord bless us in the reading and hearing of it. Okay, we have somewhat of a repetition here, verses 1 through 4. Same people, different verse. The Ziphites, again, informing against David in verses 1 through 4. David then spying to figure out the truth of the reports he hears. The Ziphites came unto Saul to Gibeah. Verse 1, they are court psychophants, we call them, flatterers, who will do whatever they are told to do in order to get what they want or to avoid what they do not want. If David became king, they might fear that he would pay them back for their former treachery, 1 Samuel 23, verse 19. Saul comes with 3,000 chosen men of Israel, chosen for their excellence, for their skill, for their valor. The Geneva Bible notes say of the most skillful and valiant soldiers, 3,000 to David's 600. That's for every one of David's five of Saul's. Verse 4, David therefore sent out spies to gain knowledge, to know the number of them, their location, their movements, what sort of men were with them. This is a prudent and diligent use of the means of gathering intelligence Verses 5 through 7, or excuse me, 5 through 12, we have David's incursion into Saul's camp. Now just imagine going in through all the tents around Saul, 
going through every single tent, God preserving you even in that utmost of danger. Abner, the son of Ner, was there, the captain of Saul's host. Abner was Saul's cousin by his uncle. Saul's father, Kish, was brother to Ner, and Abner being his son, that is Saul's cousin. We read of this in 1 Samuel 14, verse 50. Now, Abishai, who is mentioned here in verse 6, is the son of Zeruiah, brother to Joab. Now, Zeruiah was David's sister. This would make Abishai the nephew of David. Zeruiah had three sons, Abishai, uh, and then also it mentions here Joab, and then Azahel, who is not mentioned, is mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures. David asks both men, the Hittite, Ahimelech, and Abishai, and Abishai agrees that he will go down with him in this most dangerous venture. David seemed to have some instinct that God would preserve him, or perhaps by his uncommon valor, he was preserved. But God in his providence, whatever the means were, kept these men asleep while they went into the camp. Now Abishai says to David in verse 8, God hath delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. This word, delivered thine enemy, literally means God has closed the door on them. Here's your hand, they're trapped. You're in, they are in your power now to do with them. And God has done this, Abishai says. It's as if Abishai would say to David, well, you're not doing what God wants. God has made it plain to you in his providence by the events that you ought to do this. This is a common method of reasoning. And so Abishai says, let me smite him just this once. I will kill him with the first strike and he'll be done. And then your enemy will be what? Gone, like God did, putting him into your hand. And this is a common method of reasoning even among believers. We mistake God's providence for his precepts. What is God's will for my life? Do I have an open door? Are things working out the way that I wish they would? Well, that doesn't tell us anything about what we ought to do. Where do we find out what we ought to do when we make ethical decisions about good and evil? Where do we find that out? Oh, here's an open door. That's how Abishai thinks. God has made it plain to you in his providence that you must kill this man. What do the commandments of God say? Well, Abishai is not listening to those, is he? He is not. We are prone to mistake God's providence for his precepts. Open doors for God's actual will, his will of command, his precepts, his word, where he tells us, this is your duty, this is what you ought to do in this circumstance or that circumstance or the other, but I have an open door, Abishai says. And what does that mean? It might mean that God is testing you to see, will you still obey when it's easy to disobey? We are to live by laws, not by open doors, not by providence. We are to live by divine command. What does God forbid? What does he command? Not our situations determine the ethic of the thing. Let us beware of our tendency with Abishai. It's not just him, it's us. 
our tendency to justify the evil we do, even with sacred language. Did you see that? God hath shut him up into your hand. Isn't that nice? He's talking about God. He's a theologian. He believes in divine providence. God delivered him. He shut the door upon him. Today your enemy is in your hands. Religious words for an irreligious work. Verse 9, David properly answers in, in his fashion concerning Saul. David said to Abishai, destroy him not. Do not even begin to think of destroying him is literally what it means. Keep it out of your mind. Stay far from it. Why? Who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Where do we determine guilt? God, in his law, determines what is guilt, what is good, and what is evil. Our conscience can be informed properly or improperly. Our conscience can say we're guilty where God does not. But often our problem is this. Our conscience says we're fine and God says we're not. David's identifying the true standard. God made this man king. He anointed him. Who has the right then to remove him from that seat? Well, the same one who made him king, right? God anointed him. God will destroy him if that's his will, David will say. With David then, we must learn to live by laws, not by supposed open doors. The Westminster Annotations comment on this. Though David was the Lord's anointed in reversion, that means upon Saul's death, it would revert to David. David would be the Lord's anointed in reversion. Yet Saul in possession, and therefore David thought it unlawful for any to remove him, but he alone who had thus called him to this kingly function. God called Saul, God will remove him. I don't need to worry about that, David says. Verse 10, the Lord shall smite him. Remember how God struck Nabal. God can do that again. God could strike Saul. The Lord shall smite him. Or his day shall come to die. He'll come to old age. He'll eventually get to that point where he goes the way of all flesh. Or he shall descend into battle and perish. And this was actually the case. We do not know the future. We cannot control the future. What does God say we are to control? Ourselves. Duty is ours. Consequences are God's, Stonewall Jackson famously said. What has God commanded me? That is my duty. What are the consequences of how this will turn out? I don't know. That's not my job. My job is not to figure out what will be the providential circumstances and how this will fall out. How will I get to the kingdom? David might ask himself. Well, it doesn't matter. God has promised you will be there. Keep his commandments. Trust in him. Do his will. Do your duty. And leave the results and consequences to God himself. Do what God commands, refrain from what he forbids, leave the results, the timing, the success of your ventures in the future, leave that in God's hands. It's not our business. We do not control providence. God does. And we make miserable attempts to be like God when we do. The Lord forbid, he says, verse 11, that I should stretch forth 
mine hand against the Lord's anointed, or that he should allow Abishai to do so, or that I should allow others and wink at it and pretend, well, I didn't do it. Abishai did it. Is that what he says? I'm not going to do it. You can't do it. Take now, he says, the spear, the very spear he was going to take and stab into Saul. Take it and let's run. Let's go. Take the cruise of water as well. Tokens of David's absolute innocence. What did they accuse David of? Rebellion against his master, seeking to become king by a bloody pathway, killing off Saul and his household so that he would ascend. That's what they said about David. How does David prove the opposite? I had the chance to kill you. I was standing right there. I could pull up that spear out of the ground and I could have stricken you and killed you at once. But does he do that? No, the very spear he takes with him and the cruise of water. This is no incident. I don't just have a spear that looks like yours. I took your spear. I took your cruise of water. These are tokens of his absolute innocence. Furthermore, this would rebuke Saul's malice. It would witness to Abner, to Saul, and to all of his men that David is not guilty of the crimes laid at his feet. And God, in his extraordinary providence, verse 12 informs us, put a deep sleep upon them. The ordinary course of life and sleep was suspended. No one was on watch. God overruled the ordinary means to accomplish his design. David then reproves Saul, verses 13 through 20. He gives the evidence of his innocence. He leaves a great space between them, very prudent of David, verse 13. You think he could trust Saul if he were standing right there and woke him up that he wouldn't kill him? No, so he goes a good distance off and he projects his voice to Abner. Answerest thou not, Abner? Are you so unalert that you cannot even make a response in protection of your king? Have you no defense? Have you no words, Abner? Does Abner answer his question? Oh, I was sleeping on the job. Is that what Abner says? Who art thou? He shifts, right? I'm guilty, but let me talk about you, David. Let me evade the force of the accusation that I have nothing to answer. Who art thou that criest to the king? Now this is the same word when it says that Abner answered and said. Answerest thou not, Abner, David asks? Here's his answer. I'm not going to answer the question. That's his answer. I'm going to accuse you of wrongdoing and disrespect to the king. And this is what we generally do, isn't it? Conscience presses us and we figure out, how do I avoid the force of my conscience? Let me project on someone else. Maybe the very person who's accusing you or who's showing your fault, you say, well, but you. Yeah, and? Is the accusation true? Is Abner asleep on the job, literally? Yes, he was. We're generally prone to deflect the force of our conscience. The sting is more easily transferred to the evil done by others, isn't it? I don't want to feel guilty. I don't want to feel the weight of my sin. Let me talk about that person over there. Let me talk about you, David. 
Let us allow the sting of our conscience to produce the proper effect. Now the conscience is God's lieutenant. He put it inside of the soul, inside of the mind of man. God said, I have a law, and you're guilty when you violate it. So the conscience says, or is supposed to say, Amen. Let me take God's law, let me publish it to you, and let me show you what you ought to do yet future, and if you do something bad in the past, let me show you you did wrong. Or if you did what's right, let me show you you did right. This is the function of the conscience. When we hear of our sins, and we begin to feel the sting of our sins in our conscience, what will we do with that? Deflect. That's our natural tendency. Let me figure out how somebody else is worse than me. Look at him over there. Look at you making the accusation against me, as Abner says. But let us allow the sting of our conscience to produce the proper effect. The conscience draws us to repent of our sins, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only remedy for our sins. So when we say, be quiet, conscience, what are we saying? I don't want to repent of my sin. I don't want to be washed in the blood of Christ. I would prefer that I call you a sinner than me repent of my sins and be saved from them. David said to Abner, verse 15, Art not thou a valiant man? Well, the answer is yes. It's implied in the question. In fact, he doesn't even use the word valiant. Are you not a man? A man's man? You're the best soldier he's got, and you can't stay watch for a little bit. Wherefore then hast thou not kept thy lord the king? You might be valiant, but you failed in a critical point of duty, Abner. The very lord and king you have, whose task it is for you to save him alive. What have you done? You exposed him to death. This is not good, verse 16, David tells him. It is not right. It's not agreeable. It's not suited to your status for your reputation of valor. None of this is good. Then notice verse 16. As the Lord liveth, ye are worthy to die. Wasn't he talking to Abner? Why, why the shift? We get this in our King James Bible. If you use the word you for one person or for a million people, we use the same word now, don't we? Is that how they used to do it? Is that how it is in the Bible? No. In fact, in the Hebrew and in the Greek, you can distinguish between you, a single person, which he does, thou, and ye, all of you. A multiplicity of yous, in other words. Not just you, Abner. Every single soldier surrounding the king, you all are sons of death, he says. That's what the word means. You're worthy to die. You reflect the image of death. You have a sentence hanging over your head, worthy of death. Now, he says, look at the evidence. Consider these tokens. See where the king's spear is. You can see them looking around. Where, where is the king's spear? They're looking, where is it? And David shows them, right here. And the cruise of water, where's that? You guys looking after the king? 
David brings evidence, a witness, tokens that Saul is malicious, that he is lawless, that the accusations are false. Saul, in his turn, calls David his son, professing that he is loving him, reconciled to him, not his enemy any longer, now his father, as he once was with Michal, his daughter, as the magistrate is supposed to be toward those in his kingdom, to treat them with love, with patience, to correct him when he goes astray, to teach him the good ways. But here we see the hypocrisy of Saul. He knew that David was loyal to him. He knew David was his son. He knew David did no wrong. He knew that he would be king. He already professed it. He swore he would never harm David at all. But he's a hypocrite. My son, well, why are you chasing your son down to kill him, Saul? You see, his conscience is seared, as we will see in subsequent chapters, when he goes to the devil to get information when God won't answer him. David rebukes in verse 18, Wherefore doth my Lord thus pursue after his servant? This is called a rhetorical question. David doesn't want an answer. Well, let me give you the five reasons. Wherefore dost thou pursue means you have no grounds on which to pursue me. No good reason. What have I done? What evil is in mine hand? Nothing. There's no evil. He's done nothing against Saul. No lawful grounds for you to pursue me. David's conscience is clear. His words are bold. He had no fear of contradiction by Saul or Abner or anyone else. If the Lord have stirred thee up against me, let him accept an offering. God is merciful. God is gracious. He abounds in the pardon of sin. And if God stirred you up to punish me for some evil, certainly God will be reconciled to me. Or if God stirred you up by an evil spirit because of your wickedness, maybe you ought to look to God to reconcile with him, is implied in this statement. But if it's mere men, not God, cursed be they before the Lord, he says, may vengeance fly down from God on his throne. For they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord his testamental inheritance in Bethlehem, the oracles of God in the tabernacle, the prophets and the holy people of the Lord all within that land. They said, David, be gone, leave. Now, do you think David got a letter or a phone call that said, David, hey, um, could you stop serving the true God and leave your inheritance? Do you think that's what happened? Do you think people literally said to his face, leave the inheritance of God, go worship false gods? No, they didn't. And this is extremely important for the interpretation of Scripture. When people do things that have the effect of something that they themselves would never say, God says they're saying the thing that they would never say. There is a tendency in prophecy to describe things according to the reality rather than the appearance or profession. This is very important. Paul says that the heathens worship demons, devils. Do they? Well, yes, in reality they do. Do they profess to worship demons? No. 
There's a slight handful of people out there who openly profess to worship demons. Most all will profess that it's something else. They would say, well, here's the great God, Jove. We worship him. Oh, here's this other God over here that we worship for this and for that and for the other thing. Did they say, I worship demonic spirits from hell? But did they? They did. When they had the tabernacle in the wilderness, it said the Lord's name on it. But the prophet said, you carried about the tabernacle of who? Molech. Why? Because did they stay faithful to the true God who revealed his law to them? No. When Babylon is called a great whore or a beast, do you think she would profess that herself? Oh, by the way, I commit spiritual whoredom. Let me seduce you to idolatry. You think she's going to say that? No. But the prophets, when they speak of things, do not speak as they appear or as men profess, but as they are in fact. In fact, you're driving me from the inheritance of God. In fact, you're telling me to apostatize, to worship false gods. What an awful thing to say. And yet, their deeds said that very thing. God will not judge us because we say, well, I was a good person. I didn't mean to do those bad things. He's going to say, did you keep my commandments? Did you do what I said? Because if you didn't, I don't care whether you say, Lord, Lord, do you do the things that are commanded of you, Jesus says. Verse 20, let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. God's face is everywhere. He is omnipresent. He knows everything. Omni means all or universally. He's present everywhere in the fullness of his power. He knows all things. And so if you shed my blood, God will see. That's what he's saying. Let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I reside under that special care, Saul. And should you strike at me, God will see, God will judge. Why have you come out to seek a flea, he says. I'm harmless to you. I might annoy you a little bit, but I'm insignificant, I'm small. Why have you come all this way like hunting a partridge on the mountains? Who hunts partridge in the mountains? No one. Too much trouble. You can find a partridge anywhere. Why would you go into the mountains? Why would you waste your time? Sin is lunacy. Envy rots the bones. Malice, rather than killing those that you kill with your malice, kills you yourself. Let us repent of envy. Let us be content with such things as we have. Let us wish well to our neighbor seeking his wealth. If Saul had done that, would he be chasing him down like a fool? Chasing a partridge in the mountains? Of course he wouldn't. Saul then is convicted, supposedly, of his error. He once more promises that he will not persecute David. Verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Haven't we heard this before out of Saul's lips? You know, he said this to Samuel, right? 1 Samuel 15, 24 and 30 when he didn't kill all the Amalekites. He's even said this to David, chapter 24, verse 17. 
He justified David. He condemned himself. Did Saul actually repent? No. And how do we know that? Did he bring forth fruit answerable to his profession of repentance? No. He did not follow up with new obedience, keeping God's commandments. In fact, he says, I will do you no more harm because my soul was precious in thine eyes. Lies, lies, and more lies, by the way. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. Verse 21. You know what a fool is? It's a person who doesn't know, who doesn't understand, who doesn't get it. They don't have enough knowledge. They don't have enough information. Did Saul not have enough knowledge about David's innocence? Was he really just playing the fool like a court jester? Oh, I was misled. I just didn't understand. I was just goofing off. You know, I was a fool. Is that the problem that Saul had? No. Saul was malicious. Saul, against his knowledge and conscience, pursued an innocent man, raised an army of 3,000 men on two separate occasions to slay him though he knew he was innocent. Is that playing the fool? You see what he's doing? Softening the blow. Well, after all, I just didn't know what was going on here. Yes, you did, Saul. Is this confession of sin? Confeso means to say what someone else has said. Homologeo is the Greek, means the same thing. Hama is the same, legain is to speak. Speak the same thing. God says it's this. Confession means I say what God says. What does God say Saul's doing? Malice? Wickedness? Murder? Abuse of the army and his civil position, violation of God's law, which requires a king to be a terror to them that do evil. Did David do evil? No. Was he a terror to him? Yes. He's the exact opposite of what he ought to be. Oh, I was just fooling around. Just playing the fool here. I just didn't know what was going on. Yes, he did. It was an act of malice. Contrary to his knowledge and conscience, do we acclaim for ourselves some kind of shield for our sins? Or do we confess them? He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, Solomon says, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh his sin shall obtain mercy. Oh, I've just played the fool. I didn't mean to hurt you. Well, you did. So maybe you meant to? You know, if we try to cover for ourselves, we try to claim ignorance when we're actually malicious, try to claim piety when it's actually evil, or our circumstances when it's really our corrupt will or affections. We're covering for ourselves. Let us learn not to extenuate our, our sins. That means you say, I'm not actually guilty of the sin or as guilty as God says. David then has one of the young men come over and fetch the things. He had no intention of stealing from his master, merely to show him the tokens and to return them to the rightful owner. And then he calls God to render, verse 23, to turn back upon every man his righteousness and his faithfulness. Turn it back upon me. Turn it back upon you. If you have been faithful, Saul, 
may God bless you. And if you have been unfaithful, Saul, may God curse you. That's what he's saying. It's implied in the statement. But here, this relative human righteousness returned upon David's own head. As thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes, so let my life be much set by in the eyes of the Lord. And thus far the exposition of 1 Samuel chapter 26.